Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 14, 2022. Sponsored today by the American Health Information Management Association. Here's the rundown. There are reports that some insurance companies are dictating billing status no matter the care being provided their members. The Vice President of Care Management for Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace, has our lead story about how observation volumes are stressing many U.S. hospitals. In Washington, it appears the $10 billion COVID-19 relief bill will remain dormant in the coming weeks. Lawmakers were unable to reach agreement on certain restrictions in the bill. Matthew Walbright has our legislative update. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, and Tiffany Ferguson, who reports on the social determinants of health. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Um, I'm reporting today from the National Physician Advisor Conference in Austin, Texas, sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors. Happy to be down here, and hopefully there won't be too much background noise. Now, today's topic was inspired by a recent discussion on LinkedIn, where a well-known compliance expert, who also happened to previously work for the government, posted about a cardiac test that he had that was denied by his insurance company. Now, the story he related was that his father had heart disease with two heart attacks and stents, although his father was still alive and well at 80. But as a result of this history, he gets a yearly EKG at his yearly physical. One year, the EKG showed an abnormality, so a nuclear stress test was ordered. The test was thankfully normal. He also had a borderline high cholesterol. He saw a new cardiologist this year who recommended, after looking at all the tests, that he have a coronary artery calcium scan. He got the test, and it showed no calcium buildup in his coronary arteries. And then his insurance company denied the claim for the test. Now, I put up a comment on LinkedIn that no insurer is going to pay for this test because it's not accepted as a valid screening test for coronary artery disease, even though it's an FDA-approved test. In fact, most hospitals gave up submitting insurance claims years ago, and they simply do the test for anybody who walks in with $50 cash. But this gentleman is insistent that it should be covered and that he is going to continue to fight the denial. Now, granted, I don't have all the details of his actual lipid profile, the breakdown, his blood pressure, um, but let's look a little closer. It's important to remember that for every test we do, we must evaluate not only the potential benefit of the test, but also the risk. That's right, every test has risks. Now, one can argue that there's no risk to getting an EKG, except the pain of pulling off those little stickers. But as we saw with this patient, that yearly, nearly risk-free EKG led to a costly nuclear stress test, which involved exposure to radiation, which fortunately was normal. What if that was abnormal, though? What if he went on and had an angiogram? And what if his angiogram showed us all his arteries looked perfect, but they accidentally dissected an artery and they ended up needing to put in a stent? Wouldn't that be awful? These risks are real. When Gilda Radner died of ovarian cancer, her husband, Gene Wilder, advocated for universal screening with a blood test. 
but scientists looked at all the data and realized that more patients would be harmed by the cascade of tests that would result from a positive screening test than lives saved by detecting cancer early because the test and no test is perfect. Imagine undergoing a laparoscopy, having your bowel perforated, requiring a colostomy, and then being told the good news is they didn't find any cancer. Now, you probably have a vague sense from my past segments that I'm no fan of insurance companies, but in this case, I am on their side. Just because a doctor and a patient want a test doesn't mean it should be covered. The science must support its use. Remember, if you're going to do a test on a patient who feels perfectly fine, you better be sure you're not going to make things worse. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And coming up at about six minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and Mary Beth Pace, who's standing by to report our lead story on observation volumes are stressing many U.S. hospitals. It's Monday, it's April the 11th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Are your denial prevention and audit management efforts stuck in neutral or going in reverse? Many hospitals and other providers have tried to improve their ability to capture and retain crucial revenue. But payers have responded by doubling down on prepayment and retrospective audits. How do you avoid this narrative and protect your revenues from denials and recoupments? Payer denials and audit takebacks continue to accelerate at an alarming rate, eroding already thin margins. Will you fight back or allow yourself to be bullied? Learn proven approaches to preventing denials and audit-proofing your payments. Listen to an upcoming webcast, Denials and Audits, Strengthen Your Prevention and Appeals Management. The very important webcast is this Thursday, April 14th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now with a Modern Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, good morning. And once again, I ask the same question, what is risky today? Good morning. Well, I guess if, if for Dr. Hirsch, it would be the risk of undergoing a test and having complications, a risk which I have to say is right. But I'm going to talk about the risk that you're going to be one of the first people to be contacted by the government, alleging that you violated the No Surprises Act. So one of my clients just received such a notice. And often when you look at a notice that has a number, theirs was in the 20s telling us that there have been about a you know, couple dozen of other uh, organizations that have received such a contact. So the allegation with my client is that they failed to give a good faith estimate. And there are several things worth discussing. First, the patient in question called on a Friday to schedule an appointment the following Wednesday. Now, a good faith estimate is required when the patient schedules a visit at least three business days before the date the item is to be furnished. Counting days is often a challenge and subject, subject to some controversy. Do you count the day on which the visit is scheduled? Do you count the day on which the patient calls? So the regulation says that the GFE is needed when the appointment is scheduled at least three business days before the date the event is scheduled. Now, the way I would count, you'd need three full business days. That would be Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And since the event was scheduled for Wednesday, no GFE was required. The government disagrees. They would count the Friday, Monday, and Tuesday. So the government's position is that a visit scheduled at 4.59 on a day still counts as a full business day for that scheduling. 
Now, it's an interesting question as to whether they're correct, and I guess we'll find out. The government, which is using contractors from the consulting company KPMG to conduct the investigation, seems to be threatening to impose penalties. This is another interesting question. The No Surprises Act statute includes potential penalties of up to $10,000 per violation. However, the government has not yet issued any regulations about how to implement the penalty provision. Moreover, the statute indicates that the federal government is supposed to impose penalties only after making a finding that the state has failed to enforce the provision. So does the federal government currently have the authority to find my client? Once again, I guess we will see. Now, my firm, Fredrickson and Byron, does free monthly webinars. And the webinar on Wednesday this week is going to address no, the No Surprises Act. We're calling it the uh, uh, No Surprise Reprise. Now, if you'd like to join, listen up, because the rest of this segment might help you win a prize. So among the topics we're going to be covering is the fact that the drafters failed to understand the difference between the conjunctions and an or. Now, in third grade, most of us learned that and that and pairs things while or offers alternatives. But the individual who wrote the No Surprise Act regulations apparently missed this lesson. For example, the government asserts that if a patient uses an ambulance to transfer from one hospital to another, it's impossible, or I guess I should say prohibited, to ask the patient to consent to be balance billed. But the regulation permits balance billing if the physician treating the patient feels that the enrollee is able to transfer using non-medical transportation or non-emergency medical transportation. Now, an ambulance is only emergency medical transportation when it has its light or lights and sirens on. When it drives around normally, it's non-emergency medical transportation. If the authors of the regulation wanted to restrict transfers to patients who could go via car, they should have stopped after the phrase non-medical transportation. By adding the or non-emergency medical transportation, they mean it's entirely possible to use an ambulance for the transfer. But that's not what they think they said. The government doesn't realize how poorly they drafted that rule. So Chuck, whoever is writing these rules needs to go back to the 70s and watch some schoolhouse rock. Because... And that's an additive like this and that. And then there's or, O-R. When you have a choice like this or that. Never used a cartoon song before, but schoolhouse rock is where we're going to go. Chuck, I'm going to get you there if you're very careful. Conjunction, junction, what's your function? I'm going to get you there if you're very careful. Back to you. Thanks, David, and or I'll get back to you as well. That was David Glazer, healthcare attorney at the law firm of Frederick's Environment in downtown Minneapolis. Now is the time for the Monitor Monday report on the social determinants for health with consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Today's report on the social determinants of health is sponsored by the American Health Information Management Association, reminding you that this week is Hip Week. Here now is Tiffany Ferguson. Thanks, Chuck. I'm happy to be reporting my segment as well from the National Physician Advisor Conference. This week, I want to highlight two reports that came out addressing concerns related to access and primary care services or the lack thereof. 
Both reports will be linked in my article this week on Rack Monitor. The first report, titled Access to Services in Medicaid and the Marketplaces, Comparing Network Adequacy Rules, was released on March 30th from Georgetown University, their Center on Health Insurance Reforms. The finding highlighted not only the discrepancies between coverage for managed Medicaid plans, MCOs, but they compa- and they compared that to the market- marketplace plans, but also issues with both plans and ensuring consumers' access to primary care, maternal health, and behavioral health across states and geographic regions. The paper compares both types of health plans and acknowledges a significant deficit in the coverage rights and standards for the marketplace plans, such as many states require MCOs to provide distance standards for access to primary care, mental health, and OB-GYN. However, there is no such requirement for the marketplace plans, meaning the member that is paying a significant amount in their marketplace health plan may also be faced with lack of coverage, limited appeal rights, and long travel distances for basic care because of limited provider networks associated with their plan. The minimum amount of contract providers also varies by state for the Medicaid members. We see that when looking for primary care, specialists, mental health providers, and even post-acute, the selection is limited and inconsistent across MCO plans. To address concerns impacting provider coverage for access to care, the report makes recommendations to enhance marketplace plan requirements to include health equity across regions, access to essential community providers, and more consumer transparency and protections. For MCOs, the report is requesting minimum federal standards to ensure consistency across MCOs and across state lines, including an audit process for the performance and adherence to standards for MCOs. Our second piece of news comes from the Commonwealth Fund, released just this last week, which expands upon their 2020 health report related to maternal mortality. The research reminds us that the U.S. has the highest rate of maternal death among high-income countries, and Black women are nearly three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white women. The 2022 report updated found that women of reproductive age, 18 to 49, were significantly more likely to have problems with paying their medical bills or to skip or delay needed care because of costs. This population also has the highest rates for multiple chronic conditions and the highest rate for mental health needs, and were less likely to have a primary care physician or medical home compared to their comparison groups in the study. The report recommends ensuring basic access to affordable health care and investment in primary care, maternal health, and mental health care, which we all know are areas that have been acknowledged as having a limited workforce to keep up with the demand of consumers requiring access to such needed services. So today I ask our listeners, how many of you are personally struggling or know of others in your community that struggle with access to primary care services? Frequently a problem, somewhat a problem, not really a problem or no problem at all. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is a Chief Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management. And as you heard Tiffany say, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. 
The Monitor Monday legislative update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Good morning, Chuck. And as you noted at the beginning of the hour, Congress failed to pass a $10 billion COVID relief package last week or they left the spring recess, even as nearly a dozen members, including House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, have tested positive for COVID in so many days. The snag, immigration, was thrown into the mix. The Biden administration recently announced that it was going to roll back Title 42, a rule that allowed the U.S. to send immigrants immediately back to their home countries during the public health immediate, uh, uh, emergency. So last week, in response, Republicans tried to attach an amendment to the COVID package that would keep Title 42 in place. Title 42, however, has mixed. Uh, Title 42, however, has mixed Democrat support, and the COVID package was still being sunk by being attached to a contentious immigration effort. This means the possibility of a COVID relief bill is delayed until at least the end of April, though it will probably be tied to Title 42. For now, the federal government has stopped providing money for testing and therapeutics for the uninsured, and states are rallying back their vaccination and testing programs as these funds dry up. And we have a lot of news today about David's favorite law, the No Surprises Act. First, CMS has put out a series of FAQs regarding good faith price estimates that all healthcare providers are now required to give uninsured and self-pay patients. That good faith estimate is the No Surprises Act requirement that David talked about earlier in this broadcast. The FAQs clarify that providers do not have to provide good faith estimates for unforeseen services or expected services beyond the initially scheduled service. However, when services beyond the initial service are scheduled, a good faith estimate needs to be given. Next, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced that it will open its No Surprises Act arbitration portal this week. Providers will be able to use the portal to initiate an arbitration process if they are unhappy with reimbursement on certain out-of-network claims. Those claims, as outlined by the No Surprises Act, include all out-of-network emergency claims plus non-emergency out-of-network claims in in in-network facilities. Now, the portal was supposed to manage any disputes on these claims from the time the law took effect back on January 1st. So CMS says that any provider that wants to use the government's arbitration process can still initiate a dispute in the first 15 days after whenever the portal opens. Ostensibly, again, the portal will open this week. The administration also signaled this week that it does not plan on releasing a final, final rule on the no surprises arbitration process until this summer. The rule was expected to come out in May, but in a recent court filing, HHS says they've pushed publication of the rule out to this summer. Now, that court filing was part of the American Medical Association's lawsuit against the administration that is focused on the No Surprises Act arbitration process. So, Chuck, to review, one, HHS plans on opening a portal this week, four months late, to manage the No Surprises Act reimbursement arbitration process. Two, the No Surprises Act arbitration process remains an issue of litigation in at least three lawsuits, And three, HHS does not plan on actually finalizing the No Surprises Act's arbitration process in a rule until this summer. Did you follow all that? Back to you, Chuck. 
Yes, I did follow all of that, and thanks for that summary. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. Now is the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here is Tiffany Ferguson. So what I asked our listeners was, how many of you are personally struggling or know of others in your community that are struggling with the access to primary care services? And what we found was about 21% find this frequently a problem, 35% find this somewhat a problem, and the remainder had about 30% not really a problem and no problem was 14%. I think what's interesting is I wish we could have asked the follow-up questions is how many of you are utilizing telehealth or are living in rural versus urban communities. Uh, It'd be interesting to see the disparities across those responses. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks for the survey, Tiffany, and thanks for raising those questions. And coming up, why are observation volumes stressing so many hospitals? Well, that story is next. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Happy Hip Week from AHIMA. AHIMA is proud to sponsor this Monitor Monday broadcast and looks forward to seeing the health information community at the AHIMA 22 Global Conference in Columbus, Ohio in October. The event will center around four content themes, workforce, privacy and security, consumerism, and data. The AHIMA 22 Global Conference is the can't-miss event for health information professionals ready to create a healthier, more equitable future for patients around the world. And for the third straight year, AHIMA will offer virtual sessions as part of the conference. Learn more about the AHIMA 22 Global Conference and AHIMA 22 Virtual at conference.ahima.org. Observation volumes are stressing many U.S. hospitals. And why is this happening and what can be done about this growing problem? Here now to report our lead story is Vice President of Care Management for Trinity Health Mary Best Pace, Good morning, Mary Beth. Hey, this is a growing problem, and how is Trinity Health confronting this issue? Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me back on the broadcast. I really appreciated Dr. Hirsch's comments about Condition Code 44 versus self-denial on March 28th, because honestly, utilization process is a very difficult and complicated process. We must continue to advocate for our elders and utilize their Medicare benefits correctly. We should be using all of our patients' benefits correctly. So let's talk about something that concerns us about the insurance company's behavior over the past few years, and that is observation services. In order to discuss observation services, I just want to remind you what the CMS says about observation. Outpatient observation services is a well-defined set of specific clinically appropriate services, which include ongoing short-term treatment, assessment, and reassessment before a decision can be made regarding whether patients will require further treatment as hospital inpatients or if they are able to be discharged from the hospital. Observation services are commonly ordered for patients who present to the emergency department and who then require a significant period of treatment or monitoring in order to make a decision concerning their admission or discharge. Observation services are covered only when provided by the order of a physician or another individual authorized by state licensure law and hospital staff bylaws to admit patients to the hospital or to order outpatient tests. 
in the majority of cases, the decision whether to discharge a patient from the hospital following re resolution of the reason for the observation care or to admit the patient as an inpatient can be made in less than 48 hours, usually in less than 24 hours. In only rare and exceptional cases, do reasonable and necessary outpatient observation services span more than 48 hours. So I took that right from the CMS website. Remember that time frame, 48 hours. The CMS to midnight rule that was implemented in October of 13 should have taken care of all of the swirl around inpatient versus observation. But it seems that it really only added to the confusion of who to put in OBS and who not to. And the fact that CMS uses the definition of hospital services as, and I quote, services that are performed in the hospital, unquote, did not help either, did it? I get it that there are many times when there are people that come to the hospital to seek help that have no clinical reasons to be there. But those are few and far between. And it, isn't it sad that those become the story we hear? How many other patients do we ne never even hear about that we actually chose wrong due to the fear of an audit. What about the way that other insurances have taken the concept of observation and completely ignored the definition and the time frame? Most of the examples I have cannot be confirmed because insurance companies do not provide their policies to us. But here are examples of where we are challenged on any given day in any of our hospitals. We have heard that there are certain insurances that have internal policies that require their UM nurses to approve only observation for greater than 100 DRGs. Interesting considering the DRG is not even confirmed until after discharge and all documents are coded. Even with concurrent coding, the DRG is not finalized. So really these nurses are making a medical decision that should be a physician responsibility. We have also heard that there are other insurances that are going on 96 hours of observation before they will even discuss conversion to an inpatient level of care and then they want the patient to meet inpatient admission criteria on day five. We have examples of patients that have insurance that were denied for inpatient level of care and remain in observation for days, weeks, months, with the insurance taking no responsibility for assisting with transition out of the hospital. And then we have examples of our behavioral health patients being denied inpatient level of care in the ED, and where do we go for help for them? All of these companies Insurance companies claim they use a screening criteria, be it MCG or Interqual. Yet these examples above would prove they do not. If and when you are negotiating your contracts, and this is what Trinity is doing, negotiate with those insurance companies. Highly recommend you call out the UM process independently and contract to abide by one set of rules. Whatever that set of rules is, there will be some wins, some losses on both sides but we need to get back to the basics and we need to utilize patient benefits as they were meant to be used. This way, we can spend our resources on things that matter, like patient care. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary Beth, very much. That was the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health, Mary Beth Pace. Now it's time for today's Modern Monday Q&A, and David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in this morning. We've got a bunch of them, Chuck. So first, for folks who are trying to find that free webinar, if you just Google Glazer, G-L-A-S-E-R, and health law webinars, it should take you to the Fredrickson page and you can register, and they're available on demand so you don't have to watch them live. Ron, a question for you. Um, what's, the what's the peril of just billing 
you know, in, in a situation like the cardiac test you were talking about, can you just bill for it and see if the insurance pays it? Is there any risk associated with that? It's a complicated question because I think if you know that it's not a covered service and you're billing for it, that can be problematic. Um, the other issue is if you just bill for it and they, it isn't covered, can you go back to the patient and ask them to pay? So for Medicare, of course, without an ABN or HIN, you can't do that. With commercial insurers, it may be different. Um, and then, of course, there's the risk that if you do proceed with the test, it, it is abnormal. It creates a cascade of problems that leads to an issue. How do you defend yourself from malpractice for doing a test that really wasn't indicated? So it's complicated. It's, and that's really where shared decision-making comes in. I mean, the patients should understand both the benefits and the risks. It is complicated. So there's another question here about, David, is it possible for the government to have a private company do enforcement under a regulation? And it's one of those things, like, I will admit, when I first saw this, I had sort of the same thought. And it took me a minute to go, wait a minute, every Medicare administrative contractor is a private company. That con you know, every UPIC, every ZPIC, all of those are private companies that contract with the government to do enforcement. So the answer may be counterintuitive, but it's a, it's a strong yes. Um, the government can contract out some of its enforcement mechanisms. Uh, Matthew, I've got a question for you that's partially from me, which is I'm getting asked by lots of clients, hey, wait, now that the government has run out of money to pay the administration uh, uh, for the vaccine, what do we do? And, and like, if, is the bill likely to include retro reimbursement? Um, can we just refuse to give the vaccine and questions like that? And I'm struggling with these, with all of them. I'm just wondering if you have more insight than I. So I, it, it's a great uh, question, David. And, and kind of, I think the way I broke it down was uh, certainly for uninsured uh, patients, the administration has paused reimbursement of that. So uh, unless this COVID and, you know, there's this, to be frank, this, this COVID relief package is getting less and less likely as time goes on. So, um, so there's no guarantee that there'll be retro payments for those uh, if you submit them. If you're submitting to commercial payers and you're finding you're not getting the administrative fee, um, again, I think there's no requirement that a provider is required to give a vaccine, to provide vaccines or to give vaccines. Um, so if you've got a, a non-paying uh, payer or a non-paying person, then I don't think there's any requirement that you have to give the vaccine. Um, for the payer's part, for a commercial payer's part, looks like there's a rule, right, that uh, you can't require patient cost sharing, uh, but again, doesn't require reimbursement necessarily to the provider. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a quagmire there. I'm with you on that. Chuck, I will turn it back to you and I'll close with a happy hip week. Thanks, uh, David, very much. And thank you, Matthew, as well. And that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank our good friends at AHIMA for sponsoring today's live edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks, of course, to our outstanding panelists, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hurst, and our special guest today, Mary Beth Pace. Mary Beth Pace is the Vice President of Care Management at Trinity Health. And we thank you very much, Mary Beth, for being with us. Now, before we go, remember you can listen to all the Monitor broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor. Monitor.